uh, is 120, or the uh, sort of has a little opener. Oh, okay, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but on, no, those are, oh, Torah, those are Torah books. What are we reading? We're reading Oh, wait, this is the Oh, yeah. I don't mean but I, is there another prayer book outside? Um, I think Jackie got that one. Okay, but I don't know one if there's more. any upstairs or in any other oh, classrooms. Oh, downstairs. Yeah, Take a few. Two. Yes, I'm good. Thank you very much. Great. Okay, so the Kabbalat Panin starts on 120, and that starts with the blessing for the lighting of Shabbat candles, which is part of, well, you can't start Shabbat without the candles. In our service structure, we start the service and then we come back to lighting the candles. So we can play with it within, this, within a structured service. But if you are on your own or bringing Shabbat into your home, really the first thing you, one of the first things you would do is to light the candles. That really brings in Shabbat. You can bring it in early, not supposed to bring it in late, but we do. Um, the only thing that might precede that would be a song to gather everybody together. I usually sing Shalom Aleichem, the song for the angels, and that's an identifier to my family that we're gathering. So if anyone's not in a very good mood, it gives kids, I find, a chance to go like, <clears throat> hmm, <sighs> oh, so that's light candles. candles. So that hasn't come up yet. Okay. So I'm just saying this is written as the very first thing you might do, but it may not be the very first thing you would do. Uh, on the next page, it's got, for instance, this is still Kabbalah Shabbat, Kabbalah Panim. On page 122, we've got um, Kiddush for the evening of Shabbat, uh, which is a Kiddush, the sanctifying of the wine, which is a bigger Kiddush than you would make any other time. Some people, they're more religious and they bless the food and the chal and the bread and the, the, all the everything that they eat and drink and every single day of the week, every single meal that they eat, they would make a blessing for anything they're eating. Those of us in the Reform world, mostly we don't do that. So in any case, those who would do it on a daily basis, it's quite a little mini Kiddush or Berei Priyagafen, the words mean to But on Friday night, we make a big deal about it. It's the big Shabbat Kiddush. So there's more words here. We'll be looking at some of these things. Is there more wine? Is there more wine? Yeah, probably. You know, but it doesn't have to be. Some people will just make the Kiddush, drink the little sip of wine, done. It's not a bigger sip of wine? No. Okay. No, no, no. It doesn't have to be. It might be just because you like it. But no. And then there's a whole bunch of songs for Kabbalat Shabbat, which is Kabbalat Panim Shabbat. is similar. Kabbalat Shabbat, the receiving of Sabbath. It starts out the service on Friday night. We start with Kabbalat Shabbat. It's not done on any other night of the week. It's done just to celebrate the joy of being at Shabbat. What follows Kabbalat Shabbat is Shabbat evening one. This is a standard evening service. A standard evening service, but it's called Shabbat evening one because in this book we have two options, Shabbat evening one and Shabbat evening two, followed by, I think it's going Shabbat one to Shabbat two, or it could be Shabbat morning one. It goes Shabbat evening one, Shabbat morning one, Shabbat evening two, Shabbat morning two. That's the way they've laid it out here. It's just options. Does that make sense? We use Shabbat evening and morning two at Temple Shalom, our services. It's not to say that you couldn't do another one, and on Sisterhood Shabbat, we sometimes switch to one because they like some of the prayers there better and feel that they're more women-friendly. But, I don't know. It's a matter of opinion. It's all kinds of stuff in there. Okay, so skipping right. Now, why, why am I telling all this? I'll tell you shortly why I'm telling you all this. Shabbat evening, Shabbat morning too. Shabbat afternoon. We almost never see these prayers because in the Reform world we rarely gather for Shabbat afternoon prayers. Almost.
almost never. My experience, never. Then on page 362, you don't have to be following along page by page, but if you want to, 362 is the reading the Torah on Shabbat, a whole section dedicated to the central part of the Sabbath service, reading the Torah on Shabbat. Followed by, followed by, festivals and sacred occasions. Because on festivals, we change up some words, uh, do things a little bit differently, but the basic structure is always the same. Weekday, Shabbat, and festivals, the basic stuff is the same, and just these little additions. So they've written it over and over and over again, which is leading me to my point. Many prayers that you want to look for in the prayer book will be in multiple places. If it's a standard prayer, like the Amidah, the silent or standing prayer, that we say in every single prayer service, it'll be written multiple times. It's going to be on Shabbat 1, Shabbat 2, evening, morning, festival, doesn't matter. It's in every single service, so they write it over and over and over again. Some people say the book could be laid out differently, and other prayer books would be written differently. This is just the way they chose to lay this one out. Um... So festivals we only use when you come to services on a festival. If it's a festival Shabbat, it's yet a different one. So festival morning, probably followed by festival afternoon, or festival Shabbat, which means festival prayer. Uh, any of the holidays that are other than Shabbat. Uh, except for, a festival is any other holiday, but when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, and Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, they are so big, and there's so much prayer, they get their own prayer book. So you won't find those two holidays in this festival prayer book, because it's just way too much prayer. And Rosh Hashanah prayer service really probably lasts about four hours, and on Yom Kippur, well, evening, and then a morning service for four hours or so. And then on Yom Kippur, the evening is a couple of hours, and the day is all day long, right? So we, it has its own prayer book called the Machzor. It gets its own special name. Uh, what happens after Festival Tefillah? After Festival Tefillah, we have reading the Torah on festivals. That would make sense, because we generally always read Torah on festivals. And then there are prayers for remembrance, probably, although I missed, missed the heading. So, Oh, there's still different days. Yeah, it's Yom HaShoah, which is Holocaust Day, gets its whole section. Yom HaAtzma'ut, which is Independence Day, gets its own section. We're getting toward the end, and that's really where I'm taking you anyway. Hoda'ah. So Hoda'ah is gratitude, and Hallel is praise. Uh, Hoda'ah we never do in reform. It's just grat it's extra gratitude prayers for certain festivals, but we really don't refer to them much. But we do Hallel. Hallel just means praise. If you think about the word hallelujah, hallelujah, we shall praise Yah, God, name for God, hallelujah, praise God. Mm -hmm. What is Yom Hazikaron? Yom Hazikaron is remembrance day. Zikaron is, your, is, is memory or remembrance. So Yom Hazikaron is remembrance day. Yom Hashoah is particular remembrance of the Holocaust. The Holocaust in Hebrew is Shoah. Yeah. yeah. So two different days of remembrance. What page you on? So now I'm on Hallel, which is on 558. Hallel, you can even actually look on the page before. There's Hanukkah, there's Purim, there's all different inserts here for different things. But Hallel, 558, which again means praise, is a special, um, again, prayer insert that we do on specific festivals. 
including a new moon. If we have prayer, so if we have Shabbat falling right on a new moon, we should, we don't always, we sometimes forget, oops, we're reformed, uh, we should say Halal because it's, it's connected to the new moon and to any festivals you would add this little bit of Halal. So Halal Aleph is a reformed uh, cute thing that they did is they made a mini, a mini Halal, I'll call it Halal Aleph, and Halal Bet is the full proper Halal, and the full proper Halal is honestly not that much. It's about five minutes worth of service time as opposed to one minute. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other little things for all the other little holidays that are specific to that holiday, like prayer over Lulav or, or an etrog or something for um, Sukkot or something for Hanukkah form. And then we get into Yizkort. I want you to turn to Yizkort. That's where I want to see. 574. It's not that that page really matters, but that's the section that begins these four. I just talked about a word, and I want to know if you can hear that this is connected. These four. Anybody know what it could be about? These four. These five. Good, because I am teaching death and dying today, right? Yeah. These four, similar to the word zikaron. Can you hear that? We just talked about yom hazikaron, Remembrance Day. These four. To remember, or we shall remember. Yizkor is very well known. Again, when I talk about those words that you want to have in your pocket, you just want to know what we're talking about, Yizkor is one of them. Because we'll say, next week for a certain holiday, da, 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 whatever the holiday is, there will be a Yizkor service. Or please remind people to come for Yizkor. Or if you're here for Yizkor, what are we talking about? For this remembrance that could happen... It's not just Remembrance Day. It actually is, was written into four festival holidays, four times a year, that we come together to remember anyone who's passed away. It doesn't have to just be somebody who's um, uh, died in the last any period of time, year. Or some people say, if you actually, if you have a relative who's died within the last year, they should not come. You're excluded from Yus Corp. That is a myth, but it's a myth that's well believed in in certain you know, communities, Jewish communities. But it's really just a myth. In, in everywhere, it is really just a myth. There's no Torah behind it. So at any time, if you're if you're one week, one year, ten years, you know, remembering somebody, it's not. You don't have to, but you're encouraged to come to Yis Kor and pay respect. And it's a beautiful service. The rabbi, you know, can can cut it down to five minutes, but in its best, it should be about fifteen to twenty minutes with its own special uh, sermon. Of remembering and, and uh, beautiful. I love Yizkor actually. I really love Yizkor. And there are beautiful prayers within Yizkor, and it will um, uh, connect well to what you're learning in the second part of today's class, which is on death and dying. So Yizkor. Um, Yizkor has it's got a lot of psalms, and I'll be talking to you later about psalms. Um, want to specifically point out the El Malay Rachamim. 582, I might have to look at this later again, I will be teaching and talking tonight about the El Malay Rachamim, which if you look at the big bold words in blue, El, Malay, I should have made you do it, Malay Rachamim, you see it? El is another name for God, God, Malay, full, God full of what? Rachamim. Compassion, exactly. God full of compassion. This is the prayer 
everywhere in every movement, everywhere you go, this is the prayer that's chanted over the dead. Somebody who's just died at their funeral and at their graveside, we would chant this prayer. The cantor chants this prayer. Um, at all remembrance services, we chant the Al Rahamim. It's the most, it's considered very haunting, very powerful, kind of up there in, in Jewish memory with the Kol uh, Nidre that's chanted on uh, Yom Kippur evening. That's a very powerful and known prayer. This one's somewhat less known because not everybody's attended a funeral. But when you do, you can, this is kind of the wait for moment, the Amali Rachamim. Very powerful prayer, and it specifically remembers the person who died at the funeral. Or it could be said for like multiple uh, numbers of people or whoever we're remembering. Here. Okay, turn the page and you'll see it's blank, but it has a heading there for the Eleni on the Mourner's Kiddush. We always come to this in every single prayer service, every, every, every single one. So this one they didn't write in all multiple places. We always go to page 586 to conclude any service with the Elenu. It's just the closing prayer. And believe it or not, there's the only one tune I've ever heard for the Elenu. Elenu l'shabach l'adon l'hakol. We actually find it really boring, but nobody's ever written a new one that's, that's uh, stuck. Everywhere I've been, I'm sure in the Sephardic world it's got to be different. I, I know that. But in, anywhere that uses sort of the same type of music or musaf that we use, Reform conservative, right? this is the tune they use everywhere I've been. Um, and then, and then, we're going to stop here on page. There's some remembrance prayers. And finally, we get to 598. Bob Warner's Kaddish. He's not bothering me at all, by the way, just so you know. After the Mourner's Kaddish, we're going to stay there, so keep your thumb there. I'm just letting you know. After the Mourner's Kaddish, it's really the end of the prayer book, but they, they put in a whole bunch of lessons for the home and synagogue, songs and hymns, uh, Israeli songs and even, and, and, uh, and what's called uh, anthems, country anthems. So if you were to buy the prayer book, and I encourage you to have your own copy, mine is just filled with my handwriting and notes to myself and um, you, you're allowed to write in your prayer book if you own it. <laughs> yeah, not so much if you don't own it, but um, <laughs> not so much. Uh, you know, make it yours. If you end up getting one, make it yours. And I mentioned last week that I'm aware that there are, from time to time, at least secondhand prayer books uh, for sale in the office. So if you want to pay full price. Okay, so Mourner's Kaddish. I thought it's a good prayer to work on because this is the one, as I've told you before, that we really want to be able to say in community for community. What page number? We're on 598, and uh, ties in with today's lesson as well. The mourner's prayer. The prayer itself isn't talking so much about death and dying. It's really referring to God's holiness and God's sanctification and praise of God. And it's all written in Aramaic, but oftentimes when you read a prayer that's in Aramaic, because the lettering is in Hebrew and the sound is so similar, um, you wouldn't even notice that, you're, that it's Aramaic or Hebrew. They sound similar, but if you get to know it well enough, you, you would sort of go, oh, that must be Aramaic. It does have its own little thing to it. So um, I actually have a copy of the Kaddish prayer blown up and as a handout. If anyone wants to take a copy home or just read it in, in large print, yeah, you're more than welcome to take one now or later. Anybody want one right now? Yeah, go ahead. Um, Thank you. Yeah, sure. It's great for home practice. You don't have to look for it in the prayer book. And um, <coughs> oh, it's upside down. Oh, sorry. It doesn't make sense. Sure. <laughs> I did. Suddenly, I can't read the Hebrew. Yeah. <laughs>
some people, and I think it's just really wonderful to be able to join in with community and, and say this prayer when we all stand. So in terms of the Kaddish prayer, there, there are different um, teachings about, or, or not teachings, uh, what's what, ritual practices about how um, we do it, whether you stand beside those who are saying the prayer because they're the ones who are mourning, or you stand and say the prayer with them so they shouldn't be saying it alone, or you don't even stand, they, only they who are mourners would stand and say the prayer. There's different practices at different synagogues, and really I would suggest go along with whatever the norm is, like when in Rome, do as the Roman. That applies to this prayer. I follow suit with whatever I see most people doing in whichever congregation I'm in. But here at Temple Shalom, we believe it's appropriate to stand as a community and say the prayer as a community. If you can't say it, at least stand up. And um, So I'm going to point out, as we read this prayer, that there are some parts that even in a place where you wouldn't say the prayer, they're the community part, the community response, if you will. So you can at least identify, and perhaps in this case you can write on the handout that I gave you, the parts that would be only for the mourner, but here we all say it with the mourners, and which would be the parts that the community responds to. So if you're in a more traditional setting, you'll be able to make the responses appropriately. Okay, so let's go around the room and start reading. If you absolutely cannot even attempt it, you can pass, but try, I think, would be best to try. And go either one big word, or if you get a little word, go for two little words, or um, let's just see how that goes for now. Can I start with you, Jackie? Yeah. Okay, and just yeah, work it out. Take your time, work out word by word. Um, yet, yet. And the dalit looks similar, but this one has the dalit sticks out a little further on the top. Does it mean it like overlaps? You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Yit. So that's a dalit. So yeah, and the only difference I people say yit, but I say yit. Um, that's the way I've taught you. The e is, is very definitely e vowel. Yit gadal. Makes sense, everybody? And that yeah. dot in the gimbal is just. Extraneous dots. Extraneous dot in the gimel, also in the dalit. You're going to see lots of dots now in letters that you need to learn to ignore. The only ones that are going to matter are the bet, the pay, and the cuff. As a, these are dots within the letters. Shin and sin are on top. That that's important too. But the ones inside, bet, cuff, and pay are the only ones that matter. Okay, so yit gadal. Let's go. Good. Ve meaning and. Ve'it kadash. Everybody okay? So you stop me if anybody's struggling. Okay? Ve'it kadash. Yit kadal. Ve'it kadash. How about go for two words? Okay. Shemei. Shemei. Rabat. I know, you should probably just pass. But no, it's not. Yit kadal. Ve'it kadash. Shemei. Rabat. Let's try that together. Now, by the way, I'm not stupid. I do know that there's English if you're reading out of the book. Greatly, you're reading off that Hebrew. You won't even be tempted to read out of the, uh, the, the English side. But here in this class, uh, and this is a rule of thumb for the rest of my course with you, which isn't all that much time, 
Don't use the English transliteration unless absolutely desperately. It's not teaching you anything if you're, not, you're trying to say that, oh yeah, I can say the word and all you've done really is look at the English. It doesn't help you. I'd rather see what you're struggling with and try to work with that. In the sanctuary or anywhere else, opposite. Use the English to help you. Read along. Feel like part of the community. If that's what gets you there, go for it. If that allows you to read a little faster because the pace is fast, go for it. Just hear struggle. <laughs> okay, next line. Ayalma? Uh, uh, Good, except for the B, the beginning is more of a B, yeah. B, Alma. B, B, Alma? B, Alma. Everybody understand what I'm saying there? There's no B or B or B, it's just B. B, Alma. B, Alma. Okay, B, Alma. You want to try to the end of the sentence, Megan? Um, sure. Um, di vera. Di vera. Vera. Di vera. I said vera. Di vera. Um, Kir u da te. Great, but it's not kiru te. Oh, hi. Yeah. Kiru te. The chaf. Kiru te. Now, the other thing is, because you blend really well, which will be great for your modern Hebrew speaking in Israel, you said divra, divra, which is definitely the way we hear people speaking. What it, what's written there is divra. That's what I said. Yeah. Okay, divra. Divra. If I you just said it really divra, fast. It is similar to the word. There is a word divra, but this is divra, divra. which is slightly different. Believe me, when we're saying things quickly, nobody's going to notice anyway. I pointed out just for clarifying what's written here. Di vera chirute. So that line is bet alma di vera chirute. I'm going to go word by word and you can say at the same pace with me. So let's try it together. Bet alma di vera chirute. Excellent. Let's do the whole thing from the top. Yit kadal veyit kadash shemei raba bet alma. Di vera Excellent. Keep going, Daryl. Um. Do one syllable at a time. You're gonna make way better progress that way. Uh, so v. Just v. v. Right? The vav with the shva is its own syllable. V. And then mo? Y start with the yud. Yeah. 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 So I just want one syllable. I'm wondering if it would help you. Just a second while I show you what I want you to do. As you're going syllable by syllable, you got a letter and a vowel. V. Uh. Okay. You got a letter and a vowel. Yeah. What's that? Can you do that? The, the yud. Mm -hmm. uh, With its vowel. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Look ahead and see if there's a shva coming, which there is. So now you blend that. Yam. Uh, yam. Yam. So you have v. Yam. yam. And if you need to, you go back and go. Okay. V. Yam. La. Not le. Le. E. Single dot. Li. And does that change anything? The yud after it is. Doesn't change anything. Because it's yud is like a Y. So it's li, li. 
So now you have v, yam, li, and there might be an ending sound here. Well, I know there is. So it's li, li. That is not a dalit. It looks a lot like a dalit. Oh, it's the but it goes below the line. It's a chaf sofi. So it's ch, li, we got to blend it because we're at the last sound. Remember, the last sound doesn't have to, you know, you can just be merged in, blended in. Does that make sense? Ve yam lich. Ve yam lich. Yeah, good. And can we get Marcus to actually read here? Malchute. Malchute. Yes, malchute. Ve yam lich. Malchute. I really encourage you all to stick to the reading it in syllables. And if that's challenging, you're seeing maybe you did great, and then suddenly you hit a word that you can't do. Look at it. You know, even put a paper over it, like what I was just doing with Daryl. Put the paper there and just identify syllable by syllable. Malchute. Notice the dot in the hay. Extraneous, right? So veyamlich malchute. Okay, good. Go for another one. <laughs> good, stop there. <laughs> the other Be? one is tricky. Sorry yeah, for you, Larry, if you read that. Syllable. 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 And then when you go back and you try to, you'll go Be, Ha, Yechon, and then you'll go back to it and you start with Bechan. No. Bechayechon. 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 It's not going to change once you start trying to make those syllables blend better. Keep it syllable by syllable. Bechayechon. Okay, Larry. Hang on. Hang on. This word. Oh. Yeah. Good. Uv. Yo. Perfect. No, it's a, not a t. It's a. Uvio. Uvio mechon. Yes, uvio mechon. Uvio mechon. We're on the fourth line, the last word, second word. It's only two words there. Uvio mechon. Bechayechon. Uvio mechon. Good. Uvio mechon. Okay, let's make it a little harder. Ducky, go for a few words. Let's do like sentence, a whole little line there. Fifth one, right? Yep, fifth line. Um, U is perfect, and now you've got a Shabbat coming up, so you're going to keep going. Good. you see the word chal, you're actually going to learn to pronounce it chol. You don't need to know why, although I have explained it ages ago. But it's just one of those things you're going to get to know. Chal is pronounced chol. And if you look at the a underneath the cha in that word, the a might hopefully look a bit bigger and bolder than a regular a. That's to tell you, the Sidur prayer book is giving you a clue here, that the a 
is a special a uh, pronounced o. So dechol instead of dechal, dechol. Makes sense? Yeah. Sorry, what does deh mean? It's Aramaic. It's oh, it's like Aramaic. Saying of. Oh, it's okay. not. It's, it's not. not yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ukhay dechol of all. Beautiful. At least, 
Amen. You're going to have to learn to wait for those moments. Okay, the next little line there, two lines really, one sentence, is indented. You see that? Mm -hmm. Let's read that indented line and then we'll figure out why is it indented. I'm going to skip the pro-Hebrew reader and go to Mary. Good, Yehei. Shemei. Good, Shemei. Doing great. Rabba, 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 perfect. One more word. Ma, ma, mavaro, mavaro. Nope. So the end there. By the way, when you when you see the shava, I will even a little more try to clip it. Me, me, va, because those are not the same vowels there. Me. Va, ra, and we have an ending sound there. It's the same one we have. It, well, we have it all over the place. What's that ending sound, anybody? Yeah, ra. It's the Sophie. Ha, Sophie. So, ra. Me, va, ra. From the word, forget the mem here, the me, va, ra. Varach. What is the root Varach telling us? What word is that from? You know it well. Think about it. First one gets, I don't know what. Blessing? Yeah, what's the word we know? Baruch. Yeah, Baruch. In Aramaic here, me from me Varach, from the blessing. Varach, Baruch. It's the same word. So you've seen the Bet Reish. Chaf Sofi, many times in the word Baruch, and you've even, all of you, have read it. But when we see it here, suddenly it's a little different. But you start to make those connections, won't be so bad. So that line again was Yehei Shemei Rabbah Mevarach. Again, Yehei Shemei Rabbah Mevarach. Megan, keep going. Um, Lialam. Le'alam. Le'alam, good. Um, Ul'al'mei. Beautiful. Ul'al'mei. Al'ma'ya. Beautiful. Al'ma'ya. Le'alam. Ul'al'mei. Al'ma'ya. Together. Le'alam. Ul'al'mei. Al-Maya. One more time. This is very important, this indented part. Let's put it all together. Together. One more time. You may in this moment learn more than the average Jew in the pew. But this is indented because it's the important line for the congregation to say for the mourner, for those who are mourning. If you are saying the whole entire prayer as you do in Reform World, that's great. 
But if you're not, you say that Amen, and it leads you right into Yehei Shemei Rabbam Mevarach Le'elam Olomei Almaya. That little part is your congregational response and obligation to say along with and for the mourners. So, if you can practice even that, just that, Amen and into that little part, you'll, uh, I think, do your, I think it's just a great starting place. You want to get to the next level, you continue to learn the entire prayer. That'd be great. But to be able to say it, that one sentence divided here into two lines, to say that and say it quickly because we don't slow down. Right. You know, we're, it's just going to... Yeah. It's not super fast, but we try to keep it... Actually, it's very intentionally paced out. I don't know if you know that. But we don't allow the congregation to run away with it because we want people to be able to say it along with us. However, it's not that slow either. Unless we know that somebody specifically, like at a funeral, if they're a family in mourning and we know that they really don't know Hebrew, and it's a big struggle to say this, then we really slow it down for them. But in the general service, most people are able to keep up a reasonable pace with this. So, Yehei Shemei Rabah Mevarach Le'alam Ulamei Almaya. That was slow. That was slower than we do it there. Okay, so practice that one. Let's keep going. Uh, where did we get to? Daryl, let's try it. Don't worry. I know. <laughs> you can take that paper. Uh, Good. Yeah, do that. Ye, uh, ye, ta. Yeet. Yeet. Remember, because it's in position two, after yeet, we're just going to stop it there. Yeet. Yeet. Perfect. Ra. Ra. Yeah, ra, and there's an ending. It's that same one. See Great. Ra. See? By the time you see it the second time, it's already your friend. <laughs> Yitbarach. Beautiful. Do another one. Uh, well, this is a different... Uh, yeah, you're still... You're going to know this little... This is a prefix that we meet all the time. It means an. Uh, yeah, yeah. V. Oh, that's v. Yeah, it's the long... See the yud beside it? This okay. is the, sh the long v. That v, you're going to see it so many times. V, and. V. Is this and this the same? No. Okay. No, no, no. This little guy is coming up right there. Okay. That's the little yud. Okay, vav and yud we're talking about. Okay. V. V. Yeah. Ye. Ye. Uh, Yish. Again, you've got your ye followed by a shva. So yish. V, yish. Don't count the Oh, yeah. Ta. Ta, very good. V, yish, ta. V, yish, ta. Ta. That's a bet. Oh, pardon me. Ba. Good. Ba, and then we got the chet ending. It's a bit weird. Chet. Ba. It's the same as a chaf sofi ending. Bach. Bach. Yes. The chaf ending and the chet ending, same difference. If it ends with that sound, bach. Okay? So we have yit ba rach ta bach. One more word. Go syllable by syllable. And v. 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 Good. Don't give it any more. V. Yit. Makes sense so far? Okay. V. Yit. Oh, that's the. Uh, 
Good, it's the foot with the dot, so it's p. P. Yeah, with the vowel, v-yit. F. P. 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 Good, p. V-yit, p. One more syllable. Silent a and ra. No, so you're doing well, so forget. Now read the silent letter with an a underneath it is what? Ah. But you're going to end it off with an R. Uh, R. R. V, yit, pa, R. You see it? Yeah, okay. V, yit, pa, R. V, yit, pa, R. Okay, so that whole line. Yit, ba, rach. V, yish, ta, bach. V, yit, pa, R. Good. Marcos. Good. I will encourage you that in synagogue world we don't chop off the y. We don't say v'yi, v'yi, v'yi. In modern Hebrew they do that a bit, but certainly in prayer book we don't. So v'yit rom. Perfect. V'yit romam, v'yit nase. So dots at the other end of the shin. Exactly. Perfect. Yit romam v'yit nasay, Larry. Um, v'yit haran. Ha harar. Not quite, but there's a. It's da. not a rish. So it's a dot. It is. V'yit harar. Had. Had. V'yit hadar. Perfect. V'yit hadar. V'yit hadar. V'yit ala. Good. V'yit ala. V'yit. Great. V'yit halal. Once you start seeing these sounds over and over and over again, you'll get better at them. It's good. V'yit hadar. V'yit ale. V'yit halal. Jackie? Shem. 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 No, no, it's not an ah. It's a two dots beside each other, underneath the mem. A. Good. Shemay. Shemay. This is another important clue coming up here. Shemay. Shemay. Deku. Deku. Good. Shemay. Deku. Sha. Good. Shemay. Deku. Sha. Shemay. Deku. Sha. Everyone's going to need to know these next two words. So you work them out, and everybody's going to get to ride on your coattail. The, um, no, that'll do it. <laughs> I'll show it to you. I know. Berich. Good. Berich. Good. Berich who? Everybody say it. Berich who? Berich who? Again. Berich who? Berich who? Berich who sounds a lot like another phrase you might know. It sounds like blessing him. Yes. Which is what in Hebrew? So close to Aramaic. Berich who? 
Baruchu. 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 Yeah. Blessed be he. We say it all the time. Baruchu. <laughs> blessed be he. Baruchu is just the Aramaic way of saying the same thing. When you see that Baruchu, that's your next little congregational moment. Blessed be he. There's just been a whole bunch of words of praising God and praising God. And then the last thing she says, Shemei Kudasha. Shemei. Remember the word shame? Shemei. His name. Shemei. De of kudasha. What's that word you know? Kudasha. Kudasha. What's the root in there? You know it. Kadosh holy. Yes. Kadosh holy. His name is holy. When somebody's saying, and his name is holy, you say, Baruchu, blessed be he. But it's Baruchu in this case. We've all learned this prayer all, uh, for years and years and years. We're used to saying Baruchu just in this case. In the normal world, we wouldn't. But in this prayer, which you say a lot, you're going to say it more than you think you will because it's not just a prayer for, uh, for mourning. Shemeda Kudashah, Baruchu. Everybody, Shemeda Kudashah, Baruchu. Yeah, that's your moment. So you've got three moments. You've got an Amen. You've got a little line there to study. It's indented for you. And you've got a barichu. You're going to have another barichu. Uh, what's the time, please? 8 o'clock. Uh, okay, so, so we'll just... Sorry, just the barichu. That's the barichu. You're responding to somebody saying, uh, his name is holy. So you just say that. And your response is barichu. Blessed be his name. Blessed be he. Uh, okay. Good thing I'm recording this. <laughs> <laughs> Just read along with me, because I want to go through the prayer. We'll do some more another time. But let's go along with me, so I want to just tell you the rest of what you need to know. Everybody knows where we are? Keep going. Tushbe-cha-ta-ve-ne-cha-ma-ta-da-da-ma-ta-ve-ru-amen-amen-there-it-is-again-every-time-ve-ru-amen-amen. Amen. Keep Is what? You know it as? 
You know it as something. It comes straight out of this prayer. Uh-huh. What does that mean to you? I think you know, but I'm not sure you know. Yeah, well... Make Israel? No, yeah, I mean, I mean make peace. Is make that, peace. But what is it? It's famous. Make peace. I don't know. It's a famous... Song. Song. Yeah. You got it. But you're not sure you know why you got it. Oh, say shalom beam Roma. These are the words. We sing it all the time. Every single service, pretty much, and almost every Jewish gathering. Ose Shalom is one of the most famous Jewish songs that exists. So, lovely one to know where the words came from. Also, that's a great way to learn the words if you want to sing along with the song. It's in Aramaic. But the words there make no difference. It's the same words in Hebrew and Aramaic. The prayer is written in Aramaic Hebrew, but... Those words are not, they're the same words. Those are the words where we step back. You know, we, that's where we back out of prayer. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of people, when they say Amidah, they take three steps forward. When they end the prayer, they take three steps back. It ends every Amidah. It, and it's part of every Kaddish prayer, because it's not just a mourner's Kaddish. We use it all the time. I've mentioned this to you before. So every single time we do the Kaddish, bracketing all components of the service, after morning prayers, Torah service, uh, afternoon prayers, you know, every bracket of, in between sections of service, we do a Kaddish. Not the full mourner's Kaddish, but at least a, look at the words, and you'll know what I'm talking about if you've ever been in synagogue. Look at the word from the top. Yitkadal v'yitkadash shemei raba Belmadi v'rachute v'yamlich malchute V'chayechon v'yomechon V'chayedechol v'yit Yisrael Ba'galan, repeat it, ba'galan V'yisman karib v'yimeru Notice, that's where they join in. Yeah. It's the same. So whether you learn it with the music or you learn it without the music, those are the words you're going to need to know. And I will teach you, if you want, if you learn it, <laughs> we can learn to sing it at the appropriate place and so on. This is a really important prayer. Important for death and dying, important for community, and important for prayer service. Cool. Okay, so take a break. Have some food. Did anybody bring snack today? Oh, it's out there. Okay. Oh, it's right there. I don't know. Have a snack. It's got that kind of really weird key change right there. It does. But I do have notes for me. Because I would not manage without. It's just too much information. Okay, so, so, talking about death and dying, important thing to know about is the... Are you okay with him? Oh, he's got some stuff going on down here. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm making him really peaceful and happy. Oh. <laughs> We have a very important society of people called the Hebra Kedisha. The Hebra Kedisha, again, this is an Aramaic word. You might hear the difference. Um, but it's Hebra. It's, it's from the basis root of, of friend or people gathering. Hebra is a society. Kedisha from the word Kadosh in Hebrew. Aramaic is similar. Um, so a holy society. The Hebra Kedisha prepares the body for internment, for, for everything that's to come. 
uh, and it's considered the holiest of holy work. And very few Jewish people really want to do it. It's not comfortable. I don't think for the average person, you probably agree, it would be comfortable work. However, it's, it's as holy a job as exists in the Jewish world. And the people who do it are usually low profile. They may not be low profile people. It could be some high profile people doing it in a low pro profile way. And also some very low profile people that you wouldn't even necessarily know even live as Jewish people. But they have to be, to be chosen to be on the Hebrew Kedisha, not only do you have to volunteer to do it, because you can't get forced into work like that, you have to really want to do it, but you also have to be chosen in the sense that you would be a fitting person to do such delicate, important work. What is this um, again? Washing bodies? So I'll be explaining that, what they do. Oh. They are, so they are the burial society, or the, the, the holy society, for dealing with bodies after death. Um, just to say that although not everybody seems to know that they even exist, they're, they're everywhere. There is no Jewish community without Hebra Kedisha. It is, it's, it's a needed part of our, uh, uh, of our community. But they're very quiet about what they do, generally. How many do we have here in the Lower Manhattan? How many people in the Hebra Kedisha? That do it I don't really know. I know several people on it. I'd say about... In the women, I mean, because so we'll get into it, but their women attend to women and men tend to men, and I don't know how many are in the. I never talked to the men, I, they wouldn't talk about it with me. Women, I think there's probably about eight or seven, and because not everyone can do every so person. It's like their occupation, or is it no, it's a volunteer job they do on the side when there's a need, and that's just this community. No, it's eight, every or it's community. Oh, no, it okay. no, the Hebra Kadisha is can come from. Orthodox reform wherever, okay. and they deal with whoever. Okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. yes, it's possible that the most Orthodox, no, they would just call in somebody who's Orthodox within the Hebrew Kedisha. There are people of all denominations in, in there. Mm, okay. Members of Hebrew Kedisha uh, are expected to, I don't know whether they do, I've never asked them to fast. They have a special fast day on the 7th of Adar that's only for them. Um, it's the anniversary of Moses' death, the seventh of Adar, and so it's to atone for any disrespect that they may have shown to the dead in their lifetime, so or you know as they as they live. So that's their own special fast day, and then they end the fast day in the evening uh, with a special, a really lovely um, feast with each other that they share with each other, and acknowledging the holy work that they do and and the joy that they derive from from having such an honored position. Um, when somebody dies, a Jewish person dies, it, the intention is they should not be left alone at any moment from the time they die until they're buried in the ground. So that part, part of the watching over of the body is the responsibility of the Hebrew Kedisha. Um, this ritual act is called Shemira. Shemira, we actually saw the word in the, te in the workbook mm -hmm. when we were doing to be Shomer, Lishmor Shomer Shabbat, to watch or guard the Sabbath. And we had it in, in I think it was page, like the first or second chapter of the book. Um, Sorry, I have kind of like a kind of logistical question. I don't know okay. if this all works. So yes. Yeah. Sometimes in the hospital, then their bodies in the hospital. So does this person, do they go over to the hospital to... Yeah, so um, part of what they would do, yeah. the Hebrew Kedisha, is send the Jewish person yeah. that, or people who go and take the body to the place where they hold, keep the body, and then it'll, it'll be watched over while it's prepared for so it's everything like that's coming. So it's a refrigerator type thing for... 
It's pretty cold. It's yeah. not a, it's a, it's in a room. It's an actual physical space and it's chilly. <clears throat> so having worked in a senior's facility, I, I know a few Jewish people. Yeah. If they passed, would we have had a carry sit with the person until the, a Jewish person could have come? Because they're left alone normally in their room. Yeah, I don't know for sure if a person died in a place where there was no Jewish presence, if they, they may be left alone. But the intention is that they shouldn't be. So whether, you know, as soon as they phone, as soon as they can get there, that then the Shmira would start. But, you know, they can't do what they can't do. So it wouldn't be that the, the body is, is sinless, right? So if it can't be watched, it can't... But whether they'd ask and say, could somebody... I don't know. No, yeah, because it, sure. it needs to be watched by a person who's of the community. Okay. So, not just any random person. They have to be from either a close family member or friend or from the Chepard Kedisha or somebody who knows. Yeah. you have a question? Um, they're supposed to fast before they spend time with the body, but what happens in that time when they're called right away? They don't have to fast before they... They have to fast once a year on the 7th of the dark. Oh, well, I see. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um... Right, so in terms of Shmirah, I was saying it could be of any of a number of different people, so someone could be hired to do that job. But what, you know, as quick as they would get there, I, I'm sure there could be a lapse in the, in the time they get there. So before burial, the body has to be washed, taken care of in a ritual practice called Tahara, and I know it was written this, if, I don't know if you all got this handout, so I'm going to scroll over for a second, that Rabbi Dan gave out last week, but if you didn't, you probably want to get one, so... I would have asked him, but I didn't see him. He's busy in a meeting right now, which is why he's not here. But at some point, it would be good to get a copy of that, which really kind of, uh, in, in brief, touches on most things that, that you're, uh, I'm talking about. So tohara is, um, is that ritual practice of preparing the body, cleansing the body, that the body should be buried in a similar state to the way it came into the world, clean and pure like a baby. As the baby comes in, the body needs to be preserved in that way going out. So the Chevra Kadisha follow very strict rules about uh, you know, how to do that, and it's all done with a recitation of prayers and psalms, and um, very peaceful and holy and uh, beautiful uh, work. From the people that I know who do it, they, they, you know, it's just really powerful work for them to... I would love to be able to do it, I just don't know that I could. I don't know that I could. I think you have to be strong. Um, again, only men work with men's bodies, only women with women's bodies. It's all centered around modesty and, and, and yeah, modesty and, uh, um, okay. When the body's cleaned, when it's gone through tahara, it has to be dressed in, um, usually in shrouds. There is some room for possibly a body being buried in, in clothing very not, like has to be clean indeed but usually if possible we bury the body in what's called like a shrouds in english and the hebrew word for it is tachrichim and these shrouds or tachrichim would be very simple very plain white usually or, or almost white uh, linen or cotton and very plain um, if you know the sort of gowns we wear, it's called the kittle that we wear for high holiday services. The clergy always wears a white mm -hmm. 
It could be the kittle, the very same kittle, but now they're making the kittle so fancy that sometimes those are not the most plain of things. But the kittle that you wear, on the, you're supposed to be in that state of near to death, we're being judged, will we live, will we not? The kittle represents the same shroud. That So uh, it, ideally, you might have a kittle in your lifetime and wear it for those holy moments and then be buried in your kittle. If not, just in shrouds that the Hebra Kadisha would provide for, um, for the body. Uh, also, m uh, men for sure, and women who have been used to wearing a tallit in their lifetime, so reform women like me, I would choose to, can be wrapped in a tallit, their own tallit, or just a tallit that's used um, for burial. Uh, all men are buried in tallit, women again only if they have worn tallit as a, uh, when they're in prayer. And that tallit has, as you know, four, it's a prayer shawl I'm talking about, the tallit has four tzitziot on the corners, four tassels that are the specially bound. The, one of them, on one corner, I don't know which corner if it matters, but any one of them would be cut to indicate that this is no longer a tallit for, for, for use. It's just, it's going to go to the grave to be buried with the body. Um, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be usable without the tzitziot. In fact, the prayer shawl in and of itself is is not an important piece of clothing. It's an article of clothing, is what it really is. A prayer shawl is just a piece of clothing, just. And its purpose is to hold the tzitzit. One tzitzit, many tzitziot. Its an, its purpose is to hold the tzitziot. We decorate it, make it beautiful, and put a prayer on the neck piece called the atra. We beautify it. As, so it's more of a garment, really. But all it's really intended is to hold the tzitzit. The tzitzit are there to remind us of our covenant with God. So what what religious people wear is a it's called a talit katan. Katan means small, a small talit that's actually like a vest, and they wear it under their clothing. And you maybe would see the the, ta, the fringes, the tzitzit hanging out under their clothing. That's because they're wearing it all the time, which is ideal in the Orthodox world. We only put it on for prayer. In synagogue, and only in the morning time, not at night, because at night traditionally you couldn't see the tzitzit anyway, so you don't need the reminder at night. Only night that we do is the night of Yom Kippur, Arab Yom Kippur. I don't want to digress quickly, but yeah. we spent a bit of time on the No, Why not carry on? Um, yeah, why so, not? So, um, you know, wearing a kippah, uh, that's good form for, for men and women if they wish to, I suppose. I don't know if the politics of the good form. Yes, it is. Okay. A, a, a kippah is considered even more basic. It's a standard, yeah, so yeah. that would be so the first thing you might do. That, anyway. that which, so what about the talit? So what about that if, if, if one is Jewish and one only wears a kippah and you're going and you're wearing a talit, you're going to be you, going to look and gossip. If you were a man... In, I'm talking about men, I suppose. Only so. Let's, do, let's, let's, let's split both. it. Okay, let's talk about both. As a man, since it's traditional and expected that all men who are Jewish would wear a, a talit for prayer... In the average synagogue, if you did not wear a tallit as a man in the average synagogue, non-reform, any other movement, they would assume you are a non-Jew. They would assume you're a non-Jew. They would not ask you for any honor. Not only would they not ask you for any honor, I think I could go f further, and I'm sure it's an arguable thing, but I would suggest that 
there's no way they would ask you for an honor because you are making a statement that you're not identifying yourself in a Jewish way. In the Reform world, it's optional. It's highly, highly optional, but I will tell you that in American Reform, many men don't wear tallit or kippah, which is even more considered wrong, if you will, because even here, if you're not Jewish, you're supposed to, you're expected to put on a kippah as a sign of respect. You don't, you're not allowed to wear a tallit if you're not Jewish, anywhere, including here. Uh, but the kippah is considered respectful. So in America, they, you will see Jewish men in a, in a reform, American Reform synagogue, not wearing kippah and or not wearing tallit, and it's okay. Here, it's still unusual. We're still fairly conservative in Canada and in Vancouver in our reformness, and for I, for one, I'm pleased about that. I like that most men would wear a tallit when they come to pray as Jewish people. However, it's not a no-no, and you don't need to feel bad if you choose not to. It's very common to do it. For women, uh, probably the same thing goes, but women don't have the long, long, long history that the men do of even being, never mind, expected, entitled. We were not entitled. We had no rights at all to wear a tallit, uh, only maybe in the 80s or so, or maybe a little sooner women started to become rabbis in the, in the conservative world, in the reform world, and at that time, of course, you started seeing more women wearing tallit. I was one of those women who wasn't raised where it was seeing any women wearing tallit at all. No women wore tallit tote when I was a little girl, but by the time I was maybe in my 20s, I was starting to see, okay, some people do, but at that time, I wasn't living the most religious life. So yeah, I saw a couple of people wearing a tallit, but I was like, that's weird. Women don't wear tallit. That's weird. I'm not going to wear tallit. Uh-uh. And my mom, who's an artist, said, well, could I make you a tallit? And I was like, no, that's weird. And now I wouldn't be, I would never want to be without my tallit. You almost said wouldn't be seen dead, didn't you? Yeah, almost. <laughs> <laughs> I love my tallit. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be seen in prayer really man in synagogue without my tallit it feels very uncomfortable for me to pray without it so women have more choice around it okay moving on from preparation and all that they really the Hebra Kadisha does although we could talk the whole night about the Hebra Kadisha their work is that great moving on to next steps when a person who is in mourning somebody's just died and it's a close family member so we're talking like parent child grandparent, sibling, those are really the relationships that are like the closest, I suppose. Um, you, you may mourn for other people, but those are the ones that are expected and intended in Jewish tradition. Um, there's a process called kriya, uh, which is from the word uh, tearing. Kriya is uh, it's a practice of rending your garments. In the old days, people would perhaps just tear the art of the piece of clothing that they're wearing at the very time when they receive the news, when they realize what's happened. They tear their clothing and they wear it that way for, we'll talk about how, what period of time, for as long as they're going to wear torn clothing, they would wear that. Um, uh, in our world, most people don't want to tear their own clothing, so we attach a little ribbon with a safety pin over your heart, if it's your parent over the other side, right side, if it's uh, anyone other than a parent. You attach this little piece of ribbon and you rend or tear that ribbon. The person who's in mourning is the person who should 
tear, make the tear themselves. They would either tear their clothing or tear this ribbon, and then they wear it for a period of time. It's a sign of brokenness, brokenheartedness, and uh, you wear it as long as you feel that that statement is, is well, not as long, but even, I'll get into that. How long would you wear it? Uh, let's see if I can say about it. Uh -huh. Oh, so there's a, there's a biblical connection to this custom. Um, it's rooted in the biblical stories of Jacob, David, and Job, each of whom tore his clothing when he received tragic news of the death. Um, it is. It is. But you know what's weird? I, I really identify with it. I feel like I have almost a visceral memory that's not mine of... Of like, of like, no, that no, that pain of that loss and and the rending of garments. I don't know if it's from like fiddler on the roof and just being raised in that world of having seen it. It was in that show. It was. Was it when? I love that. The when he disconnected himself from his daughter, as if she were. Yeah, yeah. But those were other times. You didn't disrespect the papa and the traditions and the. Um, only close family members of the deceased are officially mourners. I said that. But um, because of this, only the deceased, those, so parents, children, siblings, and spouse would tear their clothes or wear a ribbon. Children younger than the age of 13, I didn't know that, and the mentally ill are not required to perform Kriya, but, um, but an adult could wear a ribbon for, or tear a garment of their own for, in, on behalf of the child. Um, or the child could slightly tear, but it's not supposed to be extreme. We're, not, we're supposed to shelter children, in a way, and mentally ill. Yeah. So this is like a ribbon that you can buy? Like it would be one that the rabbi would. The rabbi yeah, he just has a stock supply of them, and he yeah, puts it on, and there's a little ceremony. It, usually here we do it right before the, um, the funeral. But somebody might do it beforehand if it's their custom and they know enough and they want to do it. You could do it before the funeral, as soon as the person is What's the passed. color of it usually? Black. Black. Yeah. What about cousins and aunts and uncles? No. You're not? Okay. Not allowed? No, I wouldn't say that. It's meant for those specific relationships that I mentioned. Is the ribbon used in orthodox? Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. For those who don't want to, they might rent their own garments, but they may not. Um, so, you need to make the tear themselves, like I said, if possible, either just before the ceremony or just before the casket's buried, but it could be at any point. But some people tear their clothes as soon as they hear about the loss, as I said, before tearing or while doing so, the mourner of the, or the rabbi recites the blessing, Baruch, see if you can get it, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Dayan Ha emet. There's only two words. Dayan, the judge. Ha, the emet. Truth. Truth. The judge of truth. When is this said? As you're uh, just as you tear your, your garment. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, the true judge. Um, the rules regarding when to remove the ribbon or wear undamaged clothing depend on the mourner's relationship with the deceased. Again, it's all about these relationships. If the mourner has lost a parent, he should wear the ribbon for all the seven days of the Shiva. I'll talk more about Shiva, but the Shiva really does mean seven, and it's a seven-day, we'll call it initial period of mourning. 
And but they have the choice to wear it for 30 days. 30 days is in Hebrew, 30 is shloshim, and that period of secondary mourning is called shloshim. So they can choose that. If the mourner has lost any other relative, not a parent, but any other relative, the tradition encourages them to wear the ribbon for all seven days of Shiva, but doesn't require it. So again, even that would be optional. Of course, any of it's optional in the reform world, but that would be what we call, at least you're encouraged to do. Uh, also, when people change their clothing, it's considered an option of whether you're going to reattach the ribbon to your clean clothes or re-tear a garment if you're wearing clothes that you've actually torn um, because a mourner isn't even expected to have to bathe. It sounds kind of... You're not, you're not seeking comfort at that time. You're in pain, and so whether you even change your clothes... Probably today you don't see a lot of that, but it does happen, for sure. Um, all mourners should remove the ribbon or wear some other kind of clothing during the Sabbath or any major holidays that would fall within the period of your Shiva or Shloshim, your seven or thirty days of mourning. So Sabbath and other festival holidays, you try to bring up. It's not to say that you're not still in that period of mourning, but you're just easing it off a little bit. So if the... Um the mother of the child or whatever and died on a Saturday, let's say. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't wear the ribbon? Is it, is it, it changed because it's the Sabbath? Yeah, is we're supposed to acknowledge change? that on Sabbath we should be at least a little bit aware of the joy, but we don't expect a lot out of a mourner. So, for instance, and this isn't part of this lesson, but as to mention that, for instance, on Friday night when we do the joyous singing of Kabbalah Shabbat, mm -hmm. And a mourner comes to say Kaddish or to be part of the community. They are encouraged to come on Shabbat to services. Not they don't have to, but if they show up, many synagogues and communities ask for their sake, encourage them to wait outside the doors of the sanctuary, not out in the cold, but just in the hallway, until the Kabbalat Shabbat has happened, so the Lachadodi and so on has already been sung, because it's too joyous for the state they're in, and they come in then for the beginning of the Barhu. It's the, at the Kaddish, at that little joiner, the Kaddish bracket. That's where you would welcome the mourners and, and welcome them into the sanctuary. But they can come. If they feel comfortable, they can come at any point. Yeah. Can you mourn for your like a boyfriend or girlfriend? Even if you're not you may per personally do that, and you're more than welcome. You can stand up and you can say Kaddish, and obviously you would attend their funeral and all that, but the rending of garments, no. It's not a Jewish tradition to do that. Would you be allowed to? Sure, you can do whatever you want. Do you do uh, Shiva and Shloshim? No. Normally, people don't? No. Oh. But could you? Yes. What if, what if it's uh, your mother or your father or your child, and they're not Jewish, but you are? So that's like, a, that's like a discussion a, point. Yeah. That would be a discussion point, and some movements would say, if they're not Jewish, you can't. So, is, is all of this ritual for the living or for the dead? Yeah. And it depends on what your belief is. If you think you're doing it for the person who died and they're not Jewish, then there's no point and that wouldn't be reasonable to do it for a non-Jewish person. But if you're doing it for the person who's living and the people who are living, as we in the reform world say and believe that we are, we're here for those who still are living, then we would do it. So... When we have many, many, many converts here who have exactly that situation, yeah. we, we do it. Do it. They, we wouldn't give them a Jewish 
funeral because but we would find a way to make it meaningful but we can't give a Jewish funeral to a non-Jewish person right. right you couldn't ask the Hever Kadisha to do all of that for non right. you couldn't do that right. but if for you to tear your clothing to have all that Shiva Shloshim all of that yes absolutely right. But again, it's up to each rabbi and each community, but here that's, that's what we believe. Okay, moving on to funerals. In other cultures, as you know, viewing the body is not only possible, but in some cases important, um, because it brings a sense of closure to the mourner. In the Jewish world, we don't. In viewing of the dead person, um, is too, it's, it seems like a violation of the person who's, are, who's died. It's too one-sided, and we, we don't believe in it. It, it's, it is in rare cases. It has happened, but it's very, very unusual. Um, oh, yeah, it's saying we can look at the body, but the body can't look back. There's no relationship to that. There's no, there's no interaction, so we don't do it. Um, we believe that in many ways the Shmirah, the guarding of the body during the time when the Hebra Kadisha is guarding, that that is, um, that takes the place of a, of a viewing, if you will. But that it's their job to do that. And, um, and then I think you talked about caskets last week, but on the, in case you didn't, because it came up in my list as well, the casket that's chosen is um, usually wood with no metal parts. It's just of the earth so that it goes back to the ground as we believe the body does as well. Um, the ideal belief is that the body will decompose and, and everything with it will decompose. And that's considered, you know, um, that's the ultimate um, st step in the separation of body and soul, of, of soul being released and body back to earth. Right, I've heard of that. I, I don't know if it's done with us too in the farm world. I'm not aware of it because I've never seen the other side of a casket, so I don't know. But I've heard of that. Um, okay, so as I said earlier, I didn't even know about the stuff. I knew that, okay, in the funeral, there's different um, ritual practices, some of which I'm aware of because as a cantor, I, I kind of participate in some of it, but in some of it, I really didn't know what was going on. And when the rabbi said, Tell them about the stops. I didn't know about the stops. I knew that I stopped sometimes. So in the procession, as the body's leaving, uh, either to go to the funeral, to the uh, graveside, or you know, at any point where the body is in in what's the word? In transit. Yeah, in transit. Good one. Um, we stop at various intervals along the way. So it's. You know, seven stops is what I believe from um, what I've read is, is traditional, seven stops, but sometimes it could be three stops. On some readings or teachings say every six to eight feet. You stop along the way because the processional invites personal participation and accompaniment of the deceased. I really like that line. But it's also mixed with hesitation and unwillingness to remove the presence of the dead. So we don't want to rush to get there nor do we want to prevent it from happening. So there's stops along the way. <coughs> Sorry. Um, I, I'm a little mixed. Are you driving there? No, this is the walking. The walking of, say, the body to the, to the hearse oh, or okay. whatever it's okay. in movement from. Yeah. There's these um, points of stopping. <coughs> and at that point, we well, and all along the way, 
there's little there's psalms and prayers that are said and Psalm 91 if you know it is a is the famous the the prayer that's recited over and over and over and and in these moments of stopping along the way um, oh and on festive days again you don't do the stopping because there's a little bit you know more joy in those moments and so it's just a way to differentiate it Everyone in the funeral party, including anyone who's come to the funeral, would follow along after the casket, but never in front of the casket. The only person who might precede the casket would be the rabbi, but here, even the rabbi goes right behind the casket. The only one in front of him would be the, um, the very head person of the Hever Kadisha. Uh, in our community, it's uh, Reverend Joseph Marciano. He's he's called Reverend, but he's actually a rabbi. Rabbi Reverend Joseph Marciano. He is the overseer of the entire operation, and so he leads sometimes the way to the hearse. But other than that, it would be the casket, the rabbi, clergy, close family, and everybody else after that. You never get ahead of those people. Um, there are certain, yeah. Who usually carries the casket? So pallbearers, and they're named by the family. Okay. Yeah, would be probably six people that the family would would name. And if they don't, or if they don't have people to call on, then members of the community would Can be asked family to step members, in. Sorry? Can family members, uh, immediate family members be yep. pallbearers? They okay. very often are. Okay. Yeah. If, and that would be a family's decision. If it's right. too painful, they don't have right. to. If it's the right thing to do because they want to be close or feel like that would be an honor, then they, we would give them that honor. Are they typically men? No. Yeah. Yes, typically yes, but not always. I mean, many, many times I've seen non. I, I've never seen only women. I have never because it's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, both. Um, my grandma wasn't Jewish, but when she was buried, it was the four grandchildren, including myself. And then two of the men were in the middle. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, so it's always different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So there are really important elements of some, like any prayer service, there are parts that would be optional. The rabbi can decide what he wants to do or how he wants to lead it. But some that are like absolute, you always do this. So one of the songs that we always, 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 uh, um, chant is called Shiviti. It's just a really beautiful um, uh, single line of prayer. It says in English, I have set the Lord before me always. Always. That line and, uh, is always chanted at a funeral. Um, and I also chanted at every Yeast Corps service, Kol Nidre, or not Kol Nidre, but uh, the afternoon Yom Kippur service, all of the services of remembering. Beautiful line. And the other prayer that I already mentioned today is that El Malay Rachamim, God full of compassion. The El Malay Rachamim is the prayer that the cantor chants, both at the funeral, graveside, and any use um, for any remembrance service. The other, of course, important element is eulogy. That's as important to Jewish funerals as probably any other, but even more so, it also dates back to um, the Torah, the Bible. In Hebrew, it's called hesped. So hesped is the, it's just the same word for eulogy. 
Uh, eulogies are funeral orations in which the praises of the departed are sung, used to be sung in the old days. They're not really sung anymore, but they can be. Um, there are references to eulogies in the Bible. The best two known, the best, the two best known, sorry, I said that wrong, and I didn't realize this either until today when I was preparing, are Abraham's lament over Sarah. That was a big death in the Torah, Genesis. And David's lament over Saul and Jonathan, which I didn't realize. That's in Samuel, so it's in prophecy. The Talmud has a lengthy discussion. I thought this was worth sharing with you. In Sanhedrin, it's a book of Jewish learning, teaching, on whether the eulogy, and we've talked about this, I like this though, on whether the eulogy is an honor of the dead or an honor of the living. The practical difference here is seen where the deceased left in his will that he did not want to be eulogized, which, by the way, has happened, some, especially some very, uh, very holy, learned, righteous men we know of have asked that they not be eulogized. So they say, this is from Talmud, if the eulogy is out of respect for the living, then the man's instructions can be disregarded, since the honor being paid is not to him, but to his family. The conclusion, though, is that the eulogy is to pay respect to the dead, so that if such an instruction is made, it needs to be honored. So that's a sort of opposite to what we were saying before. There are elements, obviously, that are very much for the living, but the eulogy is an honor to the person who's died. Talmud also has advice to those delivering a eulogy, and I like this too. The aim is to draw attention to the achievements of the deceased person. But a little exaggeration is just fine. One can imply that the deceased was more generous, more pious than he actually was. But the praise should not be so insincere that people there know that it's totally false. Then it's not okay. So you have to do it within the... Yeah, it happens a lot. It happens all the time. I must say, I've been at many funerals where we, where the rabbi's praising and speaking all the time. And I actually one not very long ago. I would never say who, but somebody did die, and I was doing the shiva service, so I wanted to read the eulogy. I hadn't been at the funeral, and I and I read the eulogy, and I said, "Wow, this is a man I would have loved to have known." I'm like, it sounds like my dad. Like I really wish I'd known this guy. And then later, people said, not so much. Mm -hmm. Not really so much. But I'm really disappointed. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I want to get to know the whole family. <laughs> anyway, it was a really great eulogy. <laughs> okay, the Kaddish, we've talked a lot about. The Kaddish is the mourner's Kaddish. It expresses the hope that God's name be sanctified in the world. Notice we're talking about praise of God, not of the dead. It's traditionally recited by the children of the deceased for 11 months following a death. I thought it was interesting that they said the children of the deceased. Actually, I thought it was all the, the, that close familial, you know, spouse, parent, child. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, it says here, so I guess it's optional how long you would say it, but the children of the deceased for 11 months. I did that when my dad died. It was very meaningful to me. The Kaddish was recited annually as well on the anniversary of the death. I think you know it's called the Yark site. The Yark site, the anniversary of death. Graveside, placing earth. This is a really important part of Jewish uh, funerals. Filling the grave is the most striking part of a Jewish funeral. 
don't know if it is, but that's what is written. Surely the most painful. It's really a very emotional part of the, of the gathering. And perhaps the most healing. After the coffin is lowered, the rabbi hands one of the principal mourners, could be anyone in the close family, a shovel, uh, or instructs them to take a shovel from the shovels in a big pile of earth. They're, usually the shovels are like kind of stuck in the earth or laying beside the earth, or in the rabbi's hand they pass it off. Any of those. Um, and instructs them to take a shovel and to, to scoop some into the grave. Children, parents, siblings, and spouse take turns dropping just a little of the soil into the coffin. Some people do a lot, some people do a little. It could be a token amount, whatever. And then after that, often the community will take turns. That's a more modern um, practice, but it, we see it a lot, that the community then follows after the family's done as much as they're going to do. Um, according to one custom, and we do this, mourners use the back of the shovel at first to show their reluctance to do this deed. So they start out using the back, and then if we're going to do any more scoops, then they'll turn it around and do it, you know, and try to get as much earth in there. It's up to the community or, you know, to, yeah, to the people gathered to fill the grave with earth. We don't, we, the rabbis, don't let the things, the service continue, graveside, until we pretty much filled the whole thing with earth. So the rabbis and everybody, they roll up their shirt sleeves and they get the job done if community don't step up. Is it rude if you don't? I would say it used to not, like I say, it wasn't even customary in the past. Right, but but now, today, it would, it, you probably wouldn't get noticed because people are in mourning. But if you were noticed and you didn't want, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's considered the right thing to do. Right. Okay. Even if all you do is come up and take a little bit, yeah. you know, you have a sore back and you don't lift very well, just do a little bit. Because it shows that you're part of the community and you're helping to, it's one of our, our, you know, ten after the Ten Commandments, the top ten things that we're expected to do is to help provide, um, take people to their final resting place. Yeah, so it's considered appropriate. Um, yeah, in some communities, mourners will uh, the mourner will pass off the shovel to the next person in the line. But very often, and again, I've seen it in this community and where I was before in the conservative, they won't. They, it, it's considered wrong because you're dealing with the dead and there's some like almost a, a jinx or an omen about it. I don't really understand, but that's what I'm led to believe, that it's not you're passing on something that touches death. So you don't do that. You put the shovel back in the pile of earth and then the next person takes the shovel out for themselves. But um, that one, I would say, if you're worried about it, follow suit. <laughs> you're probably not going to be the first one doing it, so then you just follow suit. Um, meal of condolence. Super, super important. You might be asked to be part of this. And um, we usually have committees within a synagogue of volunteer people who get involved in this kind of stuff. So the meal of condolence, after you leave the funeral home, uh, wherever the shiva is going to be observed, that means the gathering for, for after, post, post, funeral, um, that's where the meal of condolence will be served. Uh, usually there will be a pitcher of water, sometimes at the um, grave, uh, not the grave site, the graveyard, at the entrance there'll be a, a pitcher of water, or outside the home of the people where you go to have meal of condolence, there'll be a pitcher and you wash your hands uh, ritually, like pouring it over the hands to wash off the Again, that connection with the death. It's not you're trying to forget the person, so you can kind of purify yourself for the next step. Um, 
Um, the washing, the washing. It's the obligation of the community to provide a meal of condolence to the mourners on the return to, from the cemetery. It's customary to serve foods that are round to symbolize the cyclical and continuous nature of life. I've seen a lot of meals of condolence and they're almost always the same thing. Among the most common, this is so true, is a hard-boiled egg, which is a symbol of the close connection between life and death. And I've got more in the egg coming out, it's very cool. Lentils, garbanzo beans, and bagels. All round things, and that's pretty much what I've seen at every meal of condolence. Yeah. What about meat? Is there meat ever served? Never, no. No, not at this. This is a token symbolic meal, yeah. and you give them round things okay. to that cycle of life. The egg is the only food, this is so cool, that hardens the longer it's cooked. Is that true? That's yeah. what I. That's what they say. I'm like, trying to think. Hard if you keep it in the oven. I don't know, or it gets really loose and falls off the. Anyway, well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess you can burn it, but <laughs> generally, so the egg, the longer you cook it, the harder it gets. Stressing that human beings must learn to steal themselves when death occurs. Similarly, the egg is completely sealed inside its shell, reminding the mourners to remain silent and refrain from casual talk. And that's an important thing to be aware of. We don't believe in that frivolous talk. In fact, many rabbis will say out loud to remind people that you don't go up to a mourner and say, how are you? How are you doing? How do you expect them to be doing? That's an unfair question. You don't ask that. You're there to listen. And if you can't think of any comforting thing that would be appropriate to say, that's fine. Just sitting beside a mourner and waiting to see if they have anything they, they want to talk about. Usually stories, memories, sharing you know, experiences about the person who died, that's the most appropriate talk. Lentils, unlike most beans, have no eye. Hmm. Symbolic of the deceased no longer being seen. I didn't know that about lentils. They've, I've always seen them on the plate, but I didn't know why. Also, just as lentils have now no mouth, so are mourners forbidden to open their mouths to greet people. It's true, the mourners aren't supposed to be there to say, hi, thank you for coming. Well, not supposed to be doing that. You're there to comfort them. But I don't get this point about lentils having no mouth, so, but it's very, <laughs> it's an interesting scene that I thought was worth sharing. Like, what do you mean they have no mouth? What does have a mouth? I don't know. <laughs> they're also round. Yes, they're round, and that's why I knew they were on the plate, but I didn't know the, no, the eye thing. I think that was cool. Well, the mouth know. thing, I don't get it. These but I like the, the trait that reminded me that, yeah, we're not supposed to force them to talk and greet. The critical importance of the condolence meal is, this is the most important part, is that it's served to the mourners by their community, by people who love and care for them. And that's supposed to be the, the most important part of it. No matter what's on the plate, it's supposed to be a sign of, of being cared for. Um, guests uh, nowadays sometimes are asked to sit in on the meal of condolence, but in the old days, that was n they would never see that. It was only the family that would sit down to that. It's just a token thing. It's not the good food that you're going to get later. <laughs> it's just this simple condolence meal. So I will tell you that even for me, I mean, my dad died over 10 years ago. Nobody sat with it. Like We came in. We sat down. We had that little egg and whatever, bean and bagel bite of this or that, and uh, nobody sat with us, and we didn't feel weird about it, that's just the way it is, and I've never ever personally been anywhere where guests sat in on that part. There is goodies to come, but that's not that part. So, although it says it, I didn't see it that way. Um, okay, 
So Shiva, which is the first and most critical part, period of mourning, I mean the most well observed, I would say, is the seven days <coughs> immediately following burial. Notice burial, not the day that they die. Shiva starts, Shiva starts from the day of the burial for seven days. Now lots of people don't observe seven days of Shiva. They still call it Shiva. They'll say we ha we'll have Shiva tonight. Uh, the night of the funeral it would be tonight and also on Wednesday night. That's it. Two nights of Shiva. But it still means seven and traditionally would be observed for seven days. But you can have as few or as many and some people have none and some people have all. all <coughs> um, it's not observed on Shabbat. So never. We don't have Shiva on Shabbat. But it's still considered counted as days of Shiva. So if your funeral is on Sunday and you're you know, going to end it the next Sunday, well, really, you're going to end it on Friday, uh, well, Thursday, because Friday night, it's always in the evening, Friday night and Saturday night, you wouldn't have. You didn't mention um, whether they have to be buried the next day. Oh, yeah, Bur burial happens super quickly, like as quick as possible. We don't believe in the body lingering for long. I'm glad you brought that up, because it isn't in here, and I, and I know that, I mean, it's really important. Um, I, my brother-in-law's mom died recently in England, he, not Jewish. It took six weeks to get her buried. I was shocked. That could not, that would never happen in the Jewish world, far as I believe, never. The only reason we delay a little bit is to get very close family members uh, into town. Or if there's other, some other, you know, weird reason why they died on a certain day and it was festival and you can't get you know, Chevrolet Kadisha, do everything needs to be done. That's just practical, but usually within two to three to maybe four days, maybe. But that would usually be because you're waiting for somebody to arrive. Where um, would the body be during that time? Do in this cold storage, or is it like it's it's not a refrigeration, but it's this the place that the Chevrolet Kadisha takes all bodies and they watch over them, and it's cold, but that's where they wash them, yeah, keep them, everything. Time, yeah. No. Yeah, when does the body start to decompose and start yeah. to... I don't know exactly. I guess if it's right away. I don't know, but, obvi but embalming... Blood in yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously they've got ways to do it that keep the body longer for... Never but cremation, right? Never. I, and I, knew, know of, I do know of Jewish people who have been cremated, but it's breaking Jewish law. So they wouldn't be able to have a... Well, I've even heard of people having a funeral and then going. It's it's touchy. It's for sure touchy. It's considered a no-no, but I, I know it has happened. No rabbi would be able to condone it or authorize it or whatever. Is a shiva at the mourner's house or at the synagogue? can be anywhere. So shiva can be held wherever the family decide they want to hold it. If they have a lot of people coming and it's overwhelming, you might do it at the synagogue, but most commonly it's not at the synagogue. I have been to shiva here at the synagogue, but like very large gatherings, or unusually large. Usually they're at somebody's home, somebody's home, somebody who's Jewish. I've never been to a non-Jewish home for a shiva. I don't know that it has never happened. I just have never been to one. But it is not always the, the, you know, the primary mourner. Let's say somebody's husband died, it may be at the child's house or the close friend, whatever. Who's going to want to clean their house? No, no, no. The, the community is supposed to come in and do that. So it is very often at that primary person's home. And sometimes the family says, I want it at my house, and I want it at my house. So then they might do it at different homes. Or I don't want it at my house. Okay, everybody take a turn. Every, it's always different.
Um, shiva, seven days. Right. During the shiva, the member, the mourners are encouraged to. They don't always, but they're but they're encouraged to remain at home, and the community comes to them. Community brings dinners, meals. Uh, comes in, but you, and there's usually receiving hours for the service. That's part of the shiva. We have an evening service usually, and there you might be hours around that. Like people might say, you know, doors or we're we're welcoming people at from five o'clock. Shiva service will be at six thirty, or they might say shiva's at six thirty. You can stay afterwards. People always stay afterwards. It's assumed that if you go for shiva, you'll stay afterwards for a tea and cookie kind of thing, and and community provides that usually the closer members of the people's uh, friends and family, they provide stuff like that. Um, it's also really common, just to be aware of, that people will, after the Shiva, tell stories and share memories of the person who died, and you'll be at, you would be asked to participate in that. It doesn't mean you have to. Oftentimes, you know, people say, does anyone want to share a story? And, and nobody really does, but it's lovely when you can. It's considered a great... Um, Service and and honestly, when my when my dad died and I we were holding shiva every night and that was my favorite part. It's like I heard these stories that I just had no idea about. Sometimes the way they knew my dad it was so new to me. It was very uplifting. It was for me the the greatest moments of of shiva was hearing those stories. Just one sec. Yeah. Um. So I you know I, I'm this is Rick Moranis does this song. Has anyone heard his the Seven Days of Shiva song? No. Because he completely makes a joke of the whole thing. In, in the sense that, Aww. I mean, and, and I've played it. I've played some of his stuff on the radio. And, and, but I'm not, I've not played this one because I'm, I've not been too sure how much. I know it, it could be interpreted as an extremely poor taste. Right. The song itself, and I, I've never really known, so I've been cautious. I'd have to but, hear it to know. So, well, no, basically, what looking. happens is he on the first day of Shiva, and he does it on the seven days of Christmas theme. Right, right, On the right, first right. day of Shiva, the Freedman's brought to me, and then he goes, a great big kugel, and la la la. And as we, as the days go by, everyone's bringing more, so it's actually really competitive. That's the point, one of the oh. points he's trying to get here, is that everyone's trying to outdo each other with what they're going to bring, and everybody's oh. talking about it, everyone's got their eye on it. And at the end, they've got all this food they don't know what to do with, they can't possibly eat it. So it's like, oh, thank goodness, you know, uh, the Spiegelman's great-grandfather yeah. died. We'll they take died. Over Can't there. There. So that's the song. You know what? That makes me sad. i got to share a personal story about that, but I saw other hands, so yeah. Uh, I would just want to ask, uh, in Romania, or I think Eastern European Jews, have this custom that they don't bury like um, women next to other men. They have to be women next to another woman. Huh. Uh, or, and then there's the husband and another man and so huh. on. I'm not aware of that. I don't know. That would be a great question for the rabbi, and I'm sure he'll take some questions next. I think it's because in the, in the synagogue, they used to be like... Maybe in the Orthodox, uh, like where they yeah. have the mechitza, the separation between yeah. men and women. Yeah, where I'm not Joseph's, aware of it. Yeah, Joseph's wife is buried, there's a spot for, for him. Uh -huh. And then where his dad is buried, this is the local one, there's a spot for his mom. So I think the men... There definitely the right, have spots. The men are on the right. <coughs> the spouse is on the left. Maybe. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure of that. Yeah. Um, are we going to talk about Tavishvat at all? Not today. Not today. No. Was that on your list of things to be talked about today? Oh, well, it just said on our on our program that this is what we're going to talk about today. But 
but then, sorry, no. <laughs> I won't have time. I'm very like, I'm almost uh, getting close here, but yeah. Um, two questions, two quick questions. Yeah. One on the plots. Yeah. Um, my parents are quite elderly. Is that something that we should be looking at? Like, is it something that should be yeah. put aside? Already, lots and lots of people do. Lots of people do. Uh, it's a good thing to have it done. I don't have it done for myself and my husband, and, but I guess at some point I probably should. Lots and lots of people do. Lots and lots of people don't. Many, many, many times, you know, when the person dies, and then we spring into action and everything falls into place and it's okay. all done. So will there be a space available? For sure. Will it be the space that you want that's just perfect, mm -hmm. side by side under the tree with a, you know, Eastern... Yeah. Uh, I, that's why people do it in advance, to get just the right place. Yeah. And who would you call? Who would you call yeah. first? The Reverend? Mm -hmm. Matt? The Reverend Kadisha? Yeah. Um, if you happen to know people and you could call the Reverend Kadisha, but most people don't have a clue if they call the rabbi. And the rabbi gives it all. going to ask what happens in the event that you know, a married couple, one is Jewish and the other is not. Uh... Yeah, that's problematic. So, I don't know what the reform take is. I've heard it's possible for a non-Jew to be married, buried beside their Jewish spouse in the reform world here. I've heard that, but I can't confirm that. It's certainly not allowed in other movements or other cemeteries. But it could be possibly here at Temple Shalom good one for the rabbi. I'd like to know. So I should probably find out for you, but you can ask him next week. It's, I've heard that it could happen. Yeah? How much is a burial cost? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's up there, yeah. but I also know that we have a system where nobody will... Every, everyone who needs to be buried in a Jewish cemetery will be buried. There's cost involved. It's problematic when people can't afford it, but everyone gets buried. Yeah? Um, I've noticed in Israel. And then I'm gonna move on because <laughs> I've noticed in Israel that the it looks like the the coffins are above the ground, or maybe there's just a huge big stone. Like it's I mean, just a stone. stone. It's just a big stone. Okay. Yeah. It's a big. Have to be buried underground. Have to be buried underground. Huge. That's a big, huge stone. Again, delve into it further with others, but as far as I know, Jewish girl has to have an underground. In places the like New Orleans, coffin. where they have a problem with space, right. it's underground. Then they have like. When they consider it incinerated because the heat down there is so intense, they can bury more people underground. They'll kind of reuse the space, but yeah. it's never above ground. Rabbi Dan said that yeah, for those ones, they put like dirt like around it so that you're still kind of like with the. But I noticed a lot, a lot of them in, in Israel are like that. But like again, it could be the heat problem like they have in New Orleans. I don't know. Yeah, he mentioned New Orleans. The water tablet. Yeah. 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 Okay, so to carry on, because there's so much in here, but it's real interesting stuff. Um, during Shiva, mourners remain home. The time community comes to them. I told you that. Mm -hmm. The only time a mourner is supposed to leave the home is on Shabbat to attend services in the synagogue. They don't necessarily have to come to synagogue, and they may leave at other times if they choose to. They're not expected to. During Shiva, the community comes to the mourner's home, and services are held there, other than Shabbat. Not to say that they're not additionally held elsewhere. Like, we would still have our services that we hold here, but we would hold services there. The Kaddish prayer is always recited. That's the prayer you were learning tonight earlier. 
during these services, and it's interesting to know how much comfort is derived from the recitation of the Kaddish prayer. That, that sentence was not mine. It was written. I thought it was, it's so true. I, I've seen it time and time and time again. The whole service, I could be doing the service of the, of the Shiva Minyan, the Shiva gathering, and I can sense sometimes people are really into it, sometimes they're really not. It's just, it's just do it because it has to be done, and that's what you do, and they're sad, and they're in their place. And then we get to the Kaddish, and there's like this moment that I always know this is so important. They're, that's the moment they were waiting for. This one prayer where we all identify so strongly with. If you're having, you know, Shiva at all, then you identify and care that you're, you know, doing it in a Jewish way, and then that prayer is just so important. Uh, the second period of mourning is called Shloshim, the 30 days, and that's the 30 days again from the burial. So the first seven being the Shiva, and then it continues up to 30 days. Uh, at the conclusion of Shiva, Shloshim serves as a period of re-entry into the world of living for the mourner. This is the time when the mourner returns to, at any point during, it could be earlier or later, when they feel they're ready, they will return to work or school. So after seven days, it's considered appropriate if they're ready to return to work or school or beginning to, uh, begin to start living without their loved one. During Shloshim, the mourner traditionally avoids music, gaiety, other forms of celebration. At the end of Shloshim, the family might come together to take a walk outside. That's a tradition that, that's what we did with when my uh, dad passed away. Um, we took this walk, and it was very significant. Even though I had walked outside, had been outside in between. In fact, the Shiva was not held in my home, so I had to. But we came together to sort of symbolically re-enter the world. It was very uh, comforting. Yark um, site, I think uh, you know. Oh, I remember I was going to say something about the food thing. Just, just briefly, because this was so important to me, and I thought it worth sharing, that... Um, Unfortunately, my husband and I both went through cancer a few, very few years ago, and that was really crappy. <laughs> we both got, within five weeks or so, we were diagnosed within a few, few weeks of each other. So we're both going through a rough time, and we have kids, and so the community really stepped in, really, really, really stepped in. It was awesome. It was one of the great gifts that cancer does bring when you really see how people will come together and how you can be held up by... Um, it's one of those moments where I just was so thankful to be Jewish, really. I mean, I could have been a part of any community, but I'm a part of this community, and that has gone a long way. It did at the time, and it still does. Why do I mention that? Because when we got food for the Shiva when my father passed away and the food was delivered, I certainly didn't know or sense at all any of this, um, you know, competition or... Food arrived every evening. I don't even know how it really happened. It was the most wonderful gift. Like just a, everybody was in town. Everybody's there. Everything's out of control. Life changed, shattered. It was just such a rough time. And then the meals just showed up. And pretty much everybody was at my house. I said the Shiva minions were not at my house, but everything else, everybody gathered at my house. And I just didn't need to deal with the shopping and the cooking and the figuring it out. The food just appeared. I was extremely grateful for that. Cancer, on the other hand, the community was incredible. And they were just dropping off food, left, right, and center. <coughs> but cancer goes on and on and on. It's rarely a short thing. And I had to put out a notice, please stop bringing us food. Like We just want to schlep it on to the next place because 
my kids wanted my food and I, I wanted a little salad and a little bit of fruit would be just great. But I just thought for what it's worth, the shiva was so powerful for those seven days of not having to worry because it was seven days of not having to worry and I knew it would come to an end and I could can't handle that. Um, but that long-term illness stuff, that's where the food got out of control. I'm like, how many more casseroles can I freeze? Uh, anyway, Yartzeit, I think you know that Yartzeit is the annual anniversary of the death of a person who's passed away, but it's on their Jewish anniversary, on the Jewish calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. Um, the Yartzeit is observed by lighting one of those 24-hour candles called a Yizkor candle. You can buy them in the gift shop or... Well, I don't know where else I buy them in the gift shop. And you light them the evening before. Uh, the evening before. Because, again, always start with the evening. It's just about this tall and... And this tall and, like, that round. It's not very big. That last 24 hours? And the last one, it's a thick, yeah, slow-burning candle. lasts for 24 hours. It just sits what in a What was cooler. that twisted one we saw? That's a Havdalah candle. That's for oh. the end of Shabbat. And you, you light it and blow it out. Light it, not blow it out. Light it and put it out and juice. Light it and put it out. Light it. But this one, just you light it. You might say Kaddish. You might not. You don't have to. It's just it's a candle that you light in your home and you let it burn. And it's just a reminder of the person that you're Can I ask about the Hebrew calendar? Like, yeah. I think I'm not sure. Like so how, how is that different? Like it's, it's totally different. Have you not learned about the Jewish calendar at all? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, if, if someone's died on that day, if they, they my father the died on June eleventh. Yeah. But I don't. That is not his yard site. Yeah, on June eleventh, the day at that, the year that he died, June eleventh was Sivan. I think it was also 11. I'm pretty sure that's the date. I don't know. It's I mean, I should know, right? But no, the synagogue's got it recorded. And every year, Sivan 11, they let me know. That the so it goes along with the Jewish calendar, not the regular calendar. It goes along yeah. with the Jewish calendar. The synagogue, when you join a synagogue, they'll ask, uh, do you have any people who've passed away, anyone that you're staying Kaddish for, any yard sites to remember? And you write down those dates, and they go into the, into the you know, computer system and bang out comes a letter the couple so weeks before. So it won't be 12 year. months after that that you do it again? It will be exactly on the same date of the Jewish calendar uh. and which always falls around the date of the Gregorian calendar but it's not the exact oh. date. I do not observe my father's yard set on June 11th. Huh. I observe it all people. We were, so so what happens with the yard site is it falls on a specific day, but we, most synagogues, and certainly Reform, because we know that you may not come in on that exact day of the yard site, you can do it within the week of the yard site. So from Shabbat to Shabbat. Right. So we'll say in the letter, your yard site is coming up on this date. You can, uh, the, the names will be read out for this week. You can observe any, uh, come to any services during that week, and the names will be called out. In the reform world, if you miss it, you're like, oh darn, I was out of town, but it really matters to me that I, that you can phone the rabbi and say, put my person on the next week's yard site list and we'll do it again. Because it's for you, it's for, you know, whoever, yeah. Is it typically on the Shabbat before or the Shabbat after? Uh, the date that they start observing, it would be... Shabbat after. The Shabbat, I don't know for sure. I think they start the Shabbat before. It's, unless it's on the Shabbat, they would tell you that specifically. So the Shabbat before to the Shabbat after okay. is the week that they would okay. observe it. So I don't 
Okay, so back in the Hebrew calendar, I don't think I understand that. So would like would would it change every year that it's a different date? No, it's the same date on the Jewish calendar. Yeah. Which generally, like as you know, uh, I think you know, Hanukkah falls in December, but not always on the same day in December. We've, it's on the Jewish calendar. We observe everything on a Jewish calendar. So every and the Jewish calendar is lunar. It's exactly according to the to the new month okay. to the new moon every single month. Yeah. Um, since it's a lunar calendar, and the Jewish calendar moves faster than our Gregorian okay. calendar, so every X years, I don't exactly remember how many, there's an extra month. We okay. have a second month of Adar to even up the calendar, so that we don't end up having Hanukkah in July. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be, because the Jewish calendar is the way it is, it's always going to be around the same time of year. Okay. But the, the, the date that you observe doesn't mean that, that the... Gregorian date has to become meaningless to you personally. It just means that the yard site is observed on the Jewish calendar. Does that make sense? I think so. Our new year is always going to be in September, late September, early October maybe. Mm -hmm. Our Hanukkah is always going to be December. Our Passover is always going to be March, April. So whatever time of year the person passes away, it's always going to be the same time of year that you say the art site. It just won't be the specific date on the Gregorian calendar. Okay. We'll be within a couple of weeks this way or that way. Yeah. Uh, after a year, you can have, uh, oh no, not even after a year. After the Shloshim, there can be an unveiling. It's not necessarily um, typical to have an unveiling in the Jewish calendar, but, uh, sorry, the Jewish funeral system, but you can do it, at, or a, a dedication of the gravestone. Both of those things happen, and they can happen at any time after the 30 days, but typically around 11 ish to 12 months after the person dies, or it can be really close to their first yard site, that might be a, a commemoration. Um, the, the headstone is could be fancy, could be simple, but it's always guided by the, the rulings, I guess, or the guidelines of the rabbi. So most communities that I know of, and I think here too, although I'm not exactly sure how carefully they abide by this, most of them prefer simple, so that we're not outdoing each other. So there would usually be a standard that any uh, cemetery, which is, um, sorry, it's my 30, I know it's time, um, that we would observe. So uh, here there's, it would be simpler. The last thing I'm just going to keep you another minute is visiting the grave. Judaism teaches that mourners, I think this is very interesting, should not show excessive grief. Uh, and should avoid deifying the deceased. To this end, cemetery visitation should not be too frequent. That isn't to say that you shouldn't go when you need to go or want to go, but it's not supposed to be that you go to the gravesite to be with the person because you can't let them go. That's not a Jewish belief. Um, some authorities have said that the first time a mourner can return to the grave is after Shloshim. Most people do that. I think we do here too. While others say that a mourner may visit the grave at the conclusion of Shiva, um, seven days. But I, I've heard more that you wait the 30 days, you don't go before that. I think in order to make sure that you, in Judaism that we don't allow people to get into that habit of going too, too much. It's traditional that when one attends a burial, visiting the graves of others who are buried is not done. This is for a burial. Not say that. You Can you say that? Again? Yeah. If, you, if you're attending a burial, this is so you're going for a specific person who's died, then you don't use that opportunity to go to visit another grave. Okay. 
you can do that. You can go visit the cemetery at any time and go to as many as you would want. But if you're there for the burial, you don't do that then. Not visiting other graves is out of respect to the person who's being buried, as well as to the person previously interred. Exception to the rule would be if the people have come from a far distance, or uh, if to make another trip would cause undue hardship. So there's always that exception. If you really must, then you do it. You know, and I, I know many people who do. Um, I did. I also just wanted to say that it is very common, and you should be aware of this, that if you go to a burial, uh, people will take a stone and they'll around as round a stone as you can find, but any stone, and put that on the. There is no headstone at the beginning, but you put that on the, um, well, not on the dirt, you wouldn't, but people would put it to the side. And then certainly at the unveiling, when there is a stone there, they take a little stone and put it right, right on the headstone. So if you see that, then you'll know. And that's a, sort of this connection to the earth. And um, So there's a lot of tradition around that. And so people will, if you see it, then do it. I would say do it as well. Just follow suit. That's pretty much it. I think we covered almost everything Rabbi wanted. Wow. So, just a few questions for him for next week. I kind of want to sit in and get those answers. I want to know. Thanks. Can you take your prayer books down or yeah. give them to somebody else to take them down if they came from downstairs? What about them? Thank you. Thank you. They need to go downstairs. The plates. Yeah, I guess it would be helpful. I'll, I'll yeah. collect as much as I can with you. And, um, you can do that as a group effort. I don't know who's standing up. Oh, like yeah. three. I understand. I can see that you're sort of uh, suffering. Not for you. I was kind of get no, out of here. No, no, no. <laughs> At first I thought, oh, you have to go. Oh, no, you don't. You're just. Yeah. yeah. Do I have to save this or no? What? Do oh. I save this now or no? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, then you click done. Oh, I see them. Right. Oh, and then and you now can you can name it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And then it's right in there. Okay. Thank you. Next slide. You're welcome. I gotta close mine as well.